I want to ask you this morning two questions at the beginning. On a scale of one to ten, of course, answer this to yourself, don't shout it out loud. How focused today are you on being encouraging and helpful? How focused today are you on being encouraging and helpful? Second question. Do you care about having things in order? Do you care about having things in order? I did not say obsess. But do you care about having things in order? And why? This morning's passage would be misread if you did not walk away with the primary focus on building up others and ordering your life according to God's character. It's only in displaying God's character as his people that we can expect to see people come to Christ, church. So before we enter into our text this morning, I want to set the tone early. It would be a travesty to study this passage and not think heavily and more clearly about these two issues, displaying God's edifying character and his orderly character. If you miss the emphasis on God's character of his edifying character and his orderliness, you will misread this passage. I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. And if you are new to the Bible this morning or new to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, you might get overwhelmed by some of the details in the chapter we're going to look at this morning. So I want to be clear from the outset. As we enter into our, this unique experience in the early church, we are to see again another call to die to self and love others. It comes up again. So this passage that I'm about to read to you is not about trying to focus our hearts on supernatural giftings. Chapter 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians should be clear about that by now, I hope. So let's open our Bibles, hopefully our paper Bibles if you have them, if possible, to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 14, let me give a little background and context because I'm going to read the whole chapter. I want to remind you that this is a letter of response. The Corinthians wrote Paul a letter. We don't have the letter. We don't know what the questions were. We don't have those details, but we do have Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired response to that letter, 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that both encourages and corrects a very troubled congregation that was littered with confusion and selfishness. I also want to make plain, as I had before, before the New Testament canon has been, had been completed, 
the Lord gave the church many miraculous signs and gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, if you remember, tells us that gifts will cease when Christ returns. We know this. The gifts will cease. But let me slow down and say this very carefully. We also know that 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't require that all the gifts last until Jesus returns. So we know that gifts will cease for sure, but it doesn't mean all gifts will last. The Lord gives the gifts to the church that she needs. The gifts of apostleship and prophet, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, appear to be clearly temporary and foundational because the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There are no more apostles walking around because the original 12 and Paul and James and Barnabas, etc. are no longer with us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul says he himself sees himself as the last person Jesus appeared to, showing that there would be no more apostles appointed after him. The apostolic authority is enshrined in the scriptures, in the canon. The scriptures constitute our final authority and the teaching of the apostles is preserved in the scripture witness. We are sola scriptura, scripture alone. What about prophets? Prophets, just like in the Old Testament, were mostly men and sometimes women too. They were given revelation from God to speak the infallible word of God to congregations in which they lived. The unique function of the apostles and prophets did their job in laying a foundation. And since the foundation has been laid, I would argue that apostles and prophets are no longer functioning today. The scriptures are the sole and final authority. So let's go back in time to 1 Corinthians then. No New Testament canon was compiled. Spiritual gifts were very prevalent. But were they using them to the glory of God? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Hear now God's holy word. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a t tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will it be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. 
Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them was without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but also will sing with my mind. If you're praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of this must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must remain, must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. 
because, looking back at chapter 13, you've got to have that coming in to 14. Because love is superior to temporary gifts and love will continue, Paul calls the Corinthians to focus on using their gifts of the Holy Spirit in love for the edification of all who are present and in the orderliness of our Creator and, and Lord. Look at the, let's do a big overall view of the passage. Let's Google Earth, zoom out some. Let's take a big broad view here. Look at verses 1 through 19. In verses 1 through 19, love leads to a focus on edifying others. Verses 1 through 19, love leads to a focus on edifying others. Verses 20 through 25, love leads to a focus on being clear. Love leads to a focus on being clear in the truth. And then last, in 26 through 40, love leads to a focus on being in order as God commands His church to do so. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the central point. Here's the central truth we should walk away with this morning. We display God's character. We display God's character of order and love, of order and love, when we gather in obedience, when we gather in obedience to Christ as a church. When we gather in obedience to Christ as a church. We display God's character of order and love when we gather in obedience to Christ as a church. How do we do that from the text? Here's the short form of my outline. Three ways that we can do this. We commit to edification, clarity, and order. We commit to edification, clarity, and order. We commit to edification, clarity, and order. We display God's character of order and love when we gather in obedience to Christ as a church. Point number one, we commit to the ministry of edification. We commit to the ministry of edification. Verses 1 through 19, this will be a large point because I'm covering 19 verses, okay? I will not scratch every itch you have, but I will try my best. I just want to say from the outset that God, and I hope that you hear me this morning, God cares about the edification, the building up of his people in Christ Jesus. That's enough to sell us right there. God makes that a priority. It should be our priority. It is his will for the church to be built up in Jesus Christ. That means being focused, laser focused on the king's glory, focused on his life, on his death, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, and his overwhelming glorious second coming. The end goal is to be us conforming to Jesus Christ, forever enjoying his presence. There's not a day goes by where we don't need to be strengthened and encouraged and comforted and instructed according to Jesus Christ. 
Christian, every day we need to be convicted inwardly about our sins and brought under the realization that God erased a sin debt that we could never repay. Part of growing as a Christian is growing on and on in your knowledge. Like, wow, he really, there was so much sin and he covered it all. And that our entire lives are laid bare before him in the truth. I'm not sure what your expectations are about when you come to church. But I know this. God cares about your growth. And he cares about the growth of your fellow church members. And so should you. So how do we commit to the ministry of edification? First sub point. By pursuing love and desiring gifts that edify others. By pursuing love, that's the command of verse 1, by pursuing love and desiring gifts that edify others, verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5. So chapter 13 displayed the superiority of love over temporary gifts. Pursuing self-sacrificial love, the love of Christ, living out the gospel, the love of Jesus should guide the church to no surprise in the pursuit of spiritual giftedness. Why? Look at verse 4 and other verses in the entire chapter for the building up and edification of the saints. But you know what? This is not natural to our flesh, our natural impulse. I think if we're honest this morning, we, we confess our natural impulse is to think of ourselves and how we're being impacted. We love us some, some of ourselves. Humanity's natural impulse is to promote ourselves. If we're not jealous of others, often we will want others to be jealous of us. We naturally desire glory, and this is it. Uh, and this and this is because uh, and this is sin because God alone deserves all the glory. Friends, how often do we stop to hear ourselves talking about ourselves? How much time do we spend being concerned about what others think about our importance? Apparently, there was the selfish, selfish fixation upon speaking in foreign languages, tongues in Corinth. Just obsession, fixation on it. According to the book of Acts, and this chapter, God gave some the gift to speak in a different language, unlearned in order that certain ones could understand the word of God and the gospel. That's what he talks about, tongues. Sometimes they could speak this language in a prayer, a song of some kind, or in a prophetic revelatory word. But why was this gift so highly prized? Why, why were they fixated on tongues? I mean, isn't it obvious? I mean, this would be an exciting experience to have such a gift. And can you imagine having this gift? Being able to speak a foreign language that you had never studied before to tell someone the word, the gospel. And these spiritual gifts were to be stewarded as well as you can see from the tone and the direction of the passage. Just like gifts were given to people in the Old Testament like Samson, uh, we, they were not to be used poorly or selfishly. And Paul is trying to guide them away from such a mentality. 
don't pull a Samson in your gift. To use their gift of languages without interpretation so that others could understand, according to verse 2, means that, what does that mean? If they're, if they're using it only with nobody to interpret it and understand it, look at verse 2. It means that only God was going to be able to hear it. Only God, nobody in the church could hear it. God heard him, but again, God cares about the edification of his people. Of course God can understand what's going on, but look at the context here. The goal of the gift was for the building up of others. It was used to build up, and and you will see later, even to convert non-Christians. So let me note something here. There's nothing in this passage that teaches that there is such a thing as private prayer language. I I just want to say, it's not here in this passage. In fact, everything about this chapter is about, look at this chapter, it's about the public use of spiritual gifts. I do believe in miraculous things. I believe they can happen. I believe God could lead. He can prompt. He can manifest his presence in powerful ways. He can give people uh, the right words at the right moment. But it's not the same as scripture. I would not hang private prayer language as a clear doctrine at all on chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. It's just not plain here at all. This passage is not to provoke in us a desire for personal experience. Quite the opposite. It's not trying to stir us up to have a personal experience. It's trying to promote edification. So here's the question. This is what Paul really is hitting at right here. Do you want to be helpful and loving? Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to display God's loving, encouraging, and edifying character? Or do you want to be about yourself? You are either about promoting yourself and being seen, or you're about displaying Jesus Christ. Folks, it really is that simple. You know, there are some folks who will leave a church if they are not the primary fixture. There are folks who will leave a church if they're not the primary voice. They are not open to criticism, but they have plenty of them. They will often say, I just don't feel like my gifts are being used. And that might be true. But I wonder if they ever stop and look at themselves and their motives for very long. I wonder if they take take it to the Lord and ask God to make them content and make themselves nothing. To make themselves nothing the way the Lord Jesus Christ made himself nothing. Came in the flesh and took on Calvary's cross and our sins. Look at what we should desire. He says, desire the grace gifting of God to speak his word in a clear manner. Why does he say that? Why does he say prophecy to speak the word of God? Why does he say that? Look at that. Look what he says. It will strengthen, encourage and comfort in a plain way. Paul would like to see everyone enjoying the gift of speaking in tongues but he reminds them that the main objective is not their personal experience. Uh, Do you see the issue that Paul has raised here? Let me ask that again. Do you see what he's raising up here? You you probably did. I assume that you've already seen it. You're way ahead of me. Are you participating in corporate worship to focus on your edification, or are you also being mindful of edifying others? Think of how many music wars in a church would be ended if people were filled with this this mentality. But let me go a little bit further. 
Today, people can come to a church service like this one and expect me, <laughs> this is funny, expect, expect me to impress them according to their standards of whoever their favorite speaker is. I am sad to disappoint you today. They can come to the service like this and expect me, me to give a TED Talk where I captivate them with my speaking ability. And believe me, I know you're going to be disappointed. I, I'm not like that. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not gifted in such ways to be a frontliner at some conference. Sometimes you just got to know your lane and run your lane. I struggle with English as it is. Have you heard my accent? Terry was teasing me about my accent last night. But I have learned. You know what I've learned, though? That Jesus loves me. Not because of anything righteous in me. Because he just chose to love me. And I know that he knows my name. He knows everything I go through. And he's never left me. I know there's nothing sweeter than to serve him alone. And as a pastor... Uh, let me say to all of you who are present and watching online right now, please don't allow yourself to drift into a mindset of consumerism when you come to church. You should sing to the top of your lungs to the glory of God so that it will encourage others. You know that when you sing out, others are encouraged? Here's some more application. Set a good example, a good example in listening well and participating in prayer. Learn how to stay seated as best as you can so as not to distract others. Don't allow yourself to be so focused on yourself that you distract others who really need encouragement that day, who need to hear the gospel that day, who need to hear application for their walk. Don't take on the Corinthian mindset of self-edification. They were puffing themselves up. Take on the mentality of Christ. Children, young people, those of you who are old enough to know better, hear me out. Train yourself. Young people, I'm talking to you. Train yourself not to be a distraction by putting to death selfishness. I want to challenge you and say anyone can come to church and demand that the church entertain them somehow. But that's not right. That's not right to make that demand of church. We are here to preach Jesus Christ and to lift him up and to point our hearts towards heaven. The devil wants us to focus on selfishness. That's exactly what he wants us to do. And that's a sinful mindset for us to fall into. Start growing into maturity and adulthood. Start thinking about Christ, his church, and let's think less about ourselves today. Second subpoint. By valuing gifts that edify others. Valuing is the chief subpoint here. Valuing the gifts that edify others. Verses 6 through 19. When you think about serving in the church, what do you consider to be most valuable? Again, chapter 13. Love is what's in view. It's not gifts we need the most. Self-sacrificial love to seeks to care for others. That's what Paul wants us to focus on. Verse 6, Paul continues to hammer home the point of loving edification. I mean, how many times does he have to say it in this chapter? It's really clear. He asked them what 
What good will it be if he doesn't bring a word from the Lord that instructs them? Let me pause right here. I, I can't miss this. I don't want to blow by this. I, I, I hope you see it. Isn't it clear from that, from that question alone that we need the word of God every day and that when we gather as a church, we need the word of God preached and taught faithfully. Can you imagine coming to church and the word of life not being opened and proclaimed? I mean, we could go to a ball game if that's what we're going to do, friends. We open the book. Why would we not open God's word? That breaks my heart when I hear stories. Oh, we went to church today, but we didn't open the Bible. What? What are you thinking? Open God's word. What a waste of time not to focus on his word and what his word points us to, the focusing and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And to drive home that point further of valuing gifts that edify and the word of God, he reaches to an illustration about musical instruments. You see that in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7 and 8. You know, there's a difference between one of our toddlers, you know, banging on the piano after the service and, say, Christina or Kaylin playing a piece of music, right? There's a difference between me attempting to play an instrument and the Durs playing one. Huge difference. One is merely noisy. The other is distinguishable with harmony, with theme and variation. And the same is true of a trumpet blast, he says here. Its purpose is to call to action the soldiers who know its sound. It must be distinct and clear. And that's Paul's point, verse 9. Tongues without interpretation is just noise and gives no clear call to action because nobody can understand it. Verse 10, languages use words that have meaning. Hello, that's kind of the hello verse. Hello, they have meaning. Verse 11, when a foreign language is being spoken with, without translation and interpretation, then what happens is that people become separated, keyword, separated from one another in the meeting. They become foreigners to one another in the meeting. So think, think with me for a minute how backwards this is. People who had this gift of speaking in different languages, just like at the Lord's Supper, were content to show off and alienate others in the gathering. Friends, that is anti-gospel. Jesus is the revealed word of God in the flesh, and the gospel reveals what was previously unknown. God's saving grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. So, stay with me. To deliberately put others at a distance in the church service? To alienate a, a group of people? And, stay with me, to make them feel as foreigners was the very antithesis of love that Paul commanded in chapter 13. Can you imagine... Can you imagine us treating one another and making each other feel as foreigners? Let's make sure, like, I'm over here and you're over there. It's awful. 
Let me apply something again here. Friends, this is why we focus, we discipline ourselves to focus on congregational involvement. We don't want to set up a service where we put people at a distance. We want to involve as many members as we can in singing, praying, and reading the scriptures, and even giving testimonies. Verse 12 and 13, look with me. To encourage the call to build up the church further, Paul tells those with the gift of languages, you know what? Pray. Pray for the ability to interpret what you're saying. Otherwise, don't use it. Paul calls, look at verses 14 through 15. He calls them to engage their minds in the use of their spiritual gifts. If you ever doubt that Scripture calls us to be thoughtful, here's another example. Be thoughtful. And you can see throughout this chapter, Paul never wants them to lose control and awareness of what's going on in the use of these gifts. That kind of chaos in a service, in a church, is not of the Lord. Let me say that again. Chaos and people getting carried away in a church service, that is not of the Lord. That's not of His holy, orderly character. It is of the flesh. Look at verses 16 through 17. Look at how other-minded Paul is. He has a clear goal to see others join in unity and hopes to see them all say amen. You see that? The goal is to see unity in the gospel and living out the gospel, love. And church, when, when a faithful prayer is offered or scripture is read aloud or statements of faith are revisited or um, faithful preaching is taking place, there should be a choir of amen that happens in the assembly. Some folks are so timid to say amen. You shouldn't be. We long to see people rejoice and agree with God in His Word. And to that all God's people said, Amen. Let the Amen sound from His people again. We display God's character and order, excuse me, we display God's character of order and love when we gather in obedience to Christ as a church. How? Edification. Number two, we commit to the ministry of clarity. We commit to the ministry of clarity. And this is verses 20 through 25. First sub-point. It is the way of maturity. It is the way of maturity, verse 20. We are to be mature in our thinking about ourselves and others in a church gathering. We are to be innocent like infants, Paul says. He means be inexperienced when it comes to evil. And the evil he is talking about here is the self-centeredness and vanity to call attention to ourselves. That's a natural tendency of little children, isn't it? Little children are naturally self-centered. Just it's, very, it's, it's born into us. We're born sinners. Cute little bundles of sin who are self-centered. Paul says that's not the way of a mature, of mature Christian. Paul's calling us all to turn from such an evil way. Every one of us, every single one of you out here today, God's word says we were 
we were born with and we have a love affair with ourselves. And that is sin because we do not worship and honor God. It is not our natural inclination to serve God. It is not, uh, it's not in us to naturally always love others. And this way of life, this sin, has led to great pain. Every one of us, me included, have loved and trusted and obeyed ourselves over the one who created us, the one who gave us life. And if we were honest with ourselves today, we know that God would be just, not, not ill-tempered. He'd be just to deal with us for the ways we have all treated him and treated others and disregarded him and rejected the king of the universe and failed to glorify him. And perhaps you're here today and you've never confronted the fact that you yourself are a sinner. God's word says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all loved other things. We've all told lies. We've all hated. We've all coveted. We've all sinned against God. We've all rebelled against his kingly authority. And friends, we are a people that talks about Jesus Christ and his cross. And the cross of Christ is a confrontation with this very issue. You see, we've all rebelled against God. And in order to satisfy the just demands, because God is holy and perfectly righteous, to satisfy the payment, the wages of sin is death, to satisfy that, God's, God Himself came in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus of Nazareth was born of the Virgin Mary. He grew up and lived the perfect life that Adam, that Israel, that you and I never did. And he perfectly imaged the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the real image bearer. Perfect obedience. And he did all that to live the, the perfect merit and righteousness and go to the cross, to, the, to Calvary's cross, to pay for the sins, the innocent being given in place of the guilty for any and all who'd repent, take God's side against their sin and trust not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And to prove that God accepted payment for our sin debt, He raised Jesus from the dead. And He's been given the name that's above every name. And He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Friends, if you hear anything, when you hear about the cross of Christ, you, are, you and I are confronted with just how serious God takes our sin. So serious that Jesus had to come live and die in our place. I want to offer you this hope. If you're lost and dying today and you know you're in your sins, friends, if you're not in Christ, you are dying and you will know God's wrath for eternity if you don't trust in Jesus. Cry out to God. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus lived and died in my place, that he was raised on the third day so that I could be saved. His shed blood, his perfect life is my only hope. Save me. Put your Lord, I'm, telling, I'm pleading with you, friends, put your trust in Jesus. Don't wait another second. If you don't hear anything else I've said today about gifts and all that, hear that. Come to Christ. Put your trust in Jesus. Let him remake you. He will, he will guide you to a life of love and worshiping God. Come to Christ and live. Come to Christ and be forgiven. We will never grow in maturity until we die to self 
every day. Take up the cross and follow Jesus. Second sub-point here. It is the way of salvation and growth. It's the way of salvation and growth. Verse 21 through 25, look with me. Paul reaches for the Old Testament. I know y'all are waiting on this section. Paul reaches here to the Old Testament. And that's what he means here by the law. You see that? The law can sometimes refer specifically to the Pentateuch, the first five books, or to the Old Testament in general. And he reminds them through quoting Isaiah in verse 21 that tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, verse 22. Now, Pastor Garrett, what is that all about right there? Well, remember Isaiah 28? It contained the oracle of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the northern kingdom's priests and prophets mocked Isaiah. They mocked God's word as baby talk. Blah, blah, blah. They mocked it. And Isaiah replied that the Assyrians would sweep in there, take them down, and that the Assyrian language would be incomprehensible as baby talk to them. They were not going to understand them, and it was going to be really hard. The language would be confusing, but it would signify the judgment of God upon the northern kingdom. So then, Paul, what do you mean? How do, you, how do tongues function as a sign for unbelievers? Verse 23 answers it. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires uh, or unbelievers come in, they will not say that, will they not say you were out of your mind? So what Paul means here in, in citing that reference is this, when unbelievers and outsiders come into the assembly and remember, people were coming into the assembly who were, who were non-Christians, who were not married, uh, they had no, this, these tongues were going and they had no idea of what's happening. There's chaos in the service. And they're not being drawn near to the truth and to the clarity of the gospel. But you know what's happening? They're being driven away. They're being pushed away. They are repelled from the gospel because they think believers have lost their minds. Paul doesn't want... <clears throat> He doesn't want these unbelievers here to be judged. He wants them to be saved. Which is why he gives this corrective. That's why he wants a clear word to be spoken. The way they're doing tongues <coughs> was, be, was to exclude people from hearing the gospel. It was a condemning thing, not a helpful thing. And friends, this is why we want the clear plain teaching of the word every single week again and again. Look at verse 24 and 25. We want sinners to be convicted of sin and realize they are brought under the judgment of God in their conscience. That the word of God is alive and powerful and it reveals the secrets of the heart, as Paul says, and it lays the heart bare in the power of the Holy Spirit. People are converted at the clear preaching of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Why would we ever seek to do anything that would harm that ministry? Believers coming. Look at the text. 
coming to confess the truth about God is actually the sign of Isaiah's prophecy of repentance in Isaiah 45. The nations and unbelievers falling on their face and worshiping God. Do you desire this church? I know I do. How I long to see people repent and trust in Christ for salvation. I want people to know the joy that I have in Christ. How about you? Church, we will not know revival until our hearts are aligned with God's word. Until our hearts are aligned with God himself to be clear on the gospel. Last point. We display God's character of order and love when we gather in obedience to Christ as a church. How? Edification. Clarity. Third point. We commit to the ministry of order. We commit to the ministry of order. And this is verses 26 through 40. First sub point. We get in order because of God's character. And you can see God's character and his of order all over the Bible. Read creation. Read the design of the temple. Read the details of the, the new heavens and new earth. Look at the prophecy. God's character is that one of order. And verse 33 reminds us that God is a God of order and peace and not of disorder. And that should be reflected in the gathering. That's why verses 26 through 33 call uh, for orderly, orderliness and, edif- and, that's the pur- and, and, and for the purpose of edification. They are related. So back then, look at the text. When there was a prophetic word of instruction and revelation or knowledge of knowledge building up a, or a tongue. It was all or an interpretation, he says there, it was all to be done in order. They were to slow down. Let's make sure everyone can hear us. Let's make sure everyone can understand. Let's make sure our points are crystal clear. It was to be regulated, as verse 27 says. Only a couple of folks, one at a time, to get up and do it. And if there was not an an interpreter for a tongue, the speaker, look what Paul says, should keep quiet. Sit down. As you can see in the Lord, throughout this passage, they were to speak unto the Lord privately, under self-control. And as you can see in verse 29, the prophecies were to be weighed carefully. Prophets were held accountable. Now, as best as I can tell, the church would weigh what was said as a body. And all of this, of course, was to be overseen by the elders and the pastors. Again, it had to be done in order, one at a time, under control, according to verse 31 and verse 32. I think this instruction there is quite simple and clear. Friends, this is why there is wisdom in the elders laboring to set up a clear and plain service. When someone tells me the service here is plain, I thank God. If it's plain and ordinary, thank you, Lord. It was clear. It reflects God's holy character for us to come together in such a way. 
I don't want to have a church service in which I'm embarrassed by as a pastor. How about you? You want people to come to our services and be embarrassed? I don't. That was weird. I'm sorry that happened. No, we never want that to happen. I don't want the service to be where we're trying to impress people either, for heaven's sake. The goal is simple. Let us be thankful and clear. Faithful and clear. Second subpoint. We get in order in our church service because of God's design and gender. Because of God's design and gender. Look at verse 34 and 35. Paul goes back to the order God established in the home that he talked about in chapter 11. He mentions the law again in verse 34. Specifically the Old Testament, the book of Genesis that he referenced back in chapter 11. According to verse 35, it seems that women, some, some women were being disruptive in the service and acting out of sync with their husbands. Go back and read chapter 11. It's there too. And this is why they're told to remain silent and keep their questions and valuations of the prophecies under control. And just to be clear, back then when women were, <clears throat> the women were often discouraged from learning. Paul wants the women to know the word and learn the word. And he's been clear about God's design for men to step up and lead. Again, go back and read chapter 11. But to help clarify this situation about what the context was, listen to Warren Wiersbe. This is what he said simply, he put it so simply well here. Paul had already permitted the women to pray and prophesy, chapter 11, verse 5. So this instruction must apply to the immediate context of evaluating the prophetic messages. It would appear that the major responsibility of doctrinal, doctrinal purity in the early church rested on the shoulders of men, the elders in particular. And you can see that, especially in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. So it's shameful for a husband or a man to abuse authority over a woman. And Paul's point here, it's shameful for a woman to subvert God's design of male leadership. It is shameful to emasculate male leadership in a church because God has so designed them to image Christ in this particular calling. So let me be clear on this as one who speaks for the elder board. We do not believe that based on the context of 11 through 14, that God's word forbids women from sharing a testimony in the service, reading the scriptures or praying in a service or singing a solo for that matter. A careful, careful reading of the passage reveals along with other texts like 1 Timothy 2 that the function and practice of spiritual shepherding and authoritative teaching and preaching is to only be exercised by men in the church. We want to hold both of those up. That's why in mixed gatherings our men do the teaching and preaching. That's why the leading of the church is led by male leadership because God's word tells us to do that. We desire to obey God's design. And we also desire for the women of our church to be used according to Scripture and to build up the saints. Third subpoint. We get in order of the Lord's command. We get in order of the Lord's command. Verses 36 through 40. Verse 36, Paul begins to pepper them with very sharp questions. 
Read, look at that section again. Look how sharp his questions are to them. What he wants to ask them is this. Who do you think you are? That's what he's asking right there. Who do you think you are? Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people the word has come to? Stop acting like you are some standalone church that's not part of a bigger purpose. Stop acting like you are somehow more special than other churches because you do more creative things. Stop trying to reinvent ministry as if you are an apostle of some kind. You're not. And verse 38 is a sober warning to not ignore God's word. Verse 39 through 40 summarize the entire chapter. Look at verse 39 and 40. Be eager to speak God's word. Don't forbid tongues, but make sure you do everything in a fitting and orderly way so that people are edified. La Plata Baptist Church, let's not get to the point where we think so highly of ourselves that we forget that we're just a tiny speck in the history of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not to be self-important. We're in a long line of saints that goes all the way back to the beginning. We are children of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. We're not the only believers. Let's not get high-minded. We, by the grace of God, are part of a great cloud of witnesses. And our main objective is not to see how creative we can be, how impressive we can be. No, it's about how faithful and clear we can be on the cross of Christ on God's word. So church, I'm calling you from the scriptures to be someone who is edifying to others and orderly to the glory of God. Let's live our lives as a church for the purpose of seeing folks built up in the word and sinners repenting and trusting in Christ. It really is that simple. Let's close in prayer. Father, you sought us and you bought us with the redeeming blood of Jesus, your son. And Lord, it's such a privilege to be called into your people, the, con- the church, Lord. Your discipleship plan is the local church. Your plan to display yourself Lord, through your people is in the local church. We thank you, Lord, that you called us out from the world into Christ and into this body. You baptized us, Lord, by your spirit. And then, Lord, we were uh, brought into water baptism into the local church. Lord, you have set us apart, not for our not for our glory, but for yours. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that we would live lives of love and of order. Lord, to display the character of you, our holy triune God. Help us, Lord, to be fixed on building others up and dying to self, following the path of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the aid of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.